Wow, God is good, huh? Yeah, I'm going to read three passages of Scripture this morning. First one, take, I'm going to take one from the Old Testament, one from what is called the Epistles, the letter of, Letters of Paul, and then from the Gospel of John. But I'm going to start in Exodus 25. If you want to follow along, I'll give you a minute to get there. Then I'm going to go to Galatians 4 and John 19. Exodus 25 first, verse um, 17. It says, You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work. You shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end, and make the other cherub at the other end. And you shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it of one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And they shall face one another, and the faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony, or the law, that I will give you. And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony, about everything which I will give you in the commandment to the children of Israel. And then we're going to go to Galatians chapter 4. Let's see, where do I start there? 21. It says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by the bondwoman and the other by the free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through the promise. Which things are symbolic, for these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who do not labor. For the, the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of the promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now, nevertheless, what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. And then lastly, let's go to John chapter 19. And we're going to open up a mystery in John here. Verse 12. John chapter 19, verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release Jesus. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. 
And when Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat. In a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, something. I don't speak Hebrew. <laughs> now it was the preparation day of the, of the Passover, and about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? But the, the chief priests answered, We have no king but Jesus. And they delivered him. Then he, Pilate, delivered him to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. And then I want to look finally at verse 23. It says, then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now, the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. And they said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but let us cast lots for it, whose it shall be that the scriptures might be fulfilled, saying, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And therefore the soldiers did these things. Now, there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. But home is in italics, which means it's not in the original text. It means he took her as his own. Let's pray. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you for everybody that's here today. Thank you for the wonderful presence of God. Thank you for the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Father, I ask you to anoint my lips today. I thank you for the testimony of the mercy seat. I thank you for the testimony of the blood of Jesus Christ. I thank you for open ears, open eyes, and open hearts. In Jesus' name, we thank you for the moving of your Spirit. Father, I pray today that you will move mightily, that you'll remove burdens, that you'll destroy yokes, that you will set the captives free, and that you will minister grace and mercy and truth and triumph into our hearts in Jesus' name. If you can agree with that, just say with me, Amen. I want to just reflect back on the Exodus text for a moment. In that text, Moses, you know, we, we have a tendency in our culture to just think of, when we think of Moses, we think of the law, we think of the commandments, the Ten Commandments, whatever the case may be. But the reality is, is that God, uh, one of the, you know, primary assignments that Moses had was the building of the tabernacle because the tabernacle, which was a tent where they would worship, the tabernacle was where the manifested presence of God would abide with the people of Israel. And so what's really interesting to me is that when they begin to make the most important piece of furniture in the tabernacle, which is the Ark of the Covenant, where he would put the testimony of the law that God had given him, he says, over the Ark of the Covenant, I want you to put a mercy seat, right? And he says, I'm going to appear there at the mercy seat, or I'm going to appear above the mercy seat. And it's from the mercy seat, God says, even to an old covenant people, even to a people that are under the administration of the law of Moses, he says to them, I'm going to speak to you uh, above the mercy seat. 
Now, what's interesting, we have a tendency because we, 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 we really, I don't think, have understood the way that uh, the Jewish spirituality and the Jewish faith had evolved from the time, really, of Genesis and Exodus to the time of what we would call Second Temple Judaism when, uh, in the first century when Jesus was born. And really, we get a different picture in the Gospels uh, of what Judaism had become versus what it started out as. Because by the time Jesus comes, Judaism is focused almost exclusively upon the law. And the reason for this is because the nation of Israel had been sent into exile. They'd been sent into Babylon and into captivity. And if you read through the prophets, what you discover is that the tangible, visible presence of God that they had in the tabernacle, that they had in the first temple, leaves the temple and leaves Jerusalem. And so essentially, the glory of God, which the Hebrew people called the Shekinah, because we say tabernacle, but in the Hebrew it's Mishkan. And the word Mishkan simply means dwelling place. And so Shekinah, it comes from the word Mishkan. And so it means the, the abiding, dwelling presence of the tangible glory of God that was in the Holy of Holies. So they had it in the tabernacle. They had the presence. They had it during the kingdom of David. They had it in the temple, in the temple of Solomon. But when they go into exile, the first thing that goes before they go into exile, the glory goes into exile. And God had promised that David's kingdom would last forever. And so here is Israel in, in captivity, and they're trying to figure out, how does this work? Because God promised an unbroken messianic line through David, but that line had been completely broken. And, he, and God had promised there would not fail to be a man that would sit on the throne of David, but yet here they are in captivity in, in a foreign nation in Babylon. And so they're trying, as a people, they're trying to figure out, how did this happen? Why did this happen? And so what they begin to conclude, they have to reconsolidate their worship without a temple. They have to reconsolidate their worship without a presence. And so what you see, you don't see Moses taking a prominent role in the book of Psalms. You don't see Moses taking a prominent role in 1 Kings or Judges or 2 Kings. You, you don't see Moses. Moses is not a primary figure. David and the line of David is the primary figure throughout that time in Israel's history. But when they reconsolidate, they decide, we know how this happened. This happened because we broke the laws. We were unfaithful to the laws. And because we were unfaithful to the laws, we were scattered. And so they began to focus on how can we better keep the law, because if we can better keep the law, then not only will we come out of exile, but the Shekinah will come out of exile as well. So what they really believed, they obsessed over, you know, what could you carry on the Sabbath, or what could you do or not do on the Sabbath. They obsessed over purity laws and all these different things, because they're trying to figure out how to bring the glory back. But the point I want to make to you is that God never established Israel to be led by the law. Because He said, my presence will be with you as a corporate people over the mercy seat. And I will speak to you from the mercy seat. Which means they were supposed to have the present tense 
voice of the Lord speaking to them and guiding them. Now, if you understand that and you go back and you read the exploits of David, they make more sense because David would have to sit at the ark to get the strategy before he would go out to the enemy. So they weren't just relating to a book. They were relating to presence. They were relating to Shekinah, to glory. Do you understand? And God was meeting with them on the mercy seat at the place of mercy. Right? Even then. Now, here's where I think, you know, I've, I've had to adjust my thinking a little bit. This is where I'm at with it right now. I know this kind of goes contrary to a lot of maybe what we've heard. But what, what we've been taught about righteousness and justification is that we still have a tendency to work out redemption from a legalistic framework. And what we say is that, that, that Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law. See, we're coming from that, almost that second temple Influence, where it's not about presence, it's about what's in the book. And so we look at it and we say, Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law. You did not. I did not. Right? And so God justifies us or makes us righteous by transferring Christ's righteousness to us. And so what we would say is that Christ sees us under the blood. Or Christ sees us through, I'm sorry, God the Father sees us through the blood of Christ. And God the Father sees us in Christ. Right? But that's actually not biblically Correct. And it sends a very dangerous message because what it says is, is that God cannot accept you as you are. That God will not relate to you as you are. But that He only relates to you based on how He's sort of balanced the books of heaven in Christ. But the truth is, the blood never covered, when, 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 even in the Old Testament, look at the Old Testament type. When the presence of God comes down, He comes down on the mercy seat, and the mercy seat was where the blood would be shed and, and, and applied on the Day of Atonement, when atonement was being made for the sins of Israel of that year. Right? Now what's interesting is they don't take the blood of the goat and sprinkle it on the people. He doesn't take the blood of the goat and sprinkle it on himself as a high priest, as a representative of the people. So God is not seeing Israel through the blood. What is God seeing through the blood? What's, okay, there's the blood, there's the mercy seat, and what's underneath the mercy seat? The testimony of the law. So, <laughs> so God doesn't have to see you through the blood, but God sees the law through the blood. So He sees you as you... <laughs> But He does not evaluate you according to the law because when He looks from the mercy seat, He doesn't see the law. He sees the blood. So what was removed was the law that stood against you. Therefore, you're justified. Make sense? This is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, look, which, which covenant, which set of, which paradigm do you want to fall under? Do you want to come under the law or Mount Sinai? Do you want to come under the law? Because if you come under the law, you're, you're, you're coming under bondage. You're a child of bondage. So if you, God doesn't evaluate you by the law because He doesn't see the law. He sees the blood and comes in mercy. So if we evaluate ourselves by the law, then we never measure up. 
So the issue is really, the, the issue is this. The, the issue is that it's impossible to have a strong faith in a God that you do not trust. It's impossible. And it's hard to trust a God you do not know. <laughs> right? And so faith grows in your own life, faith and in a community. Faith grows in an environment of grace and mercy because God says, I'm going to meet you at the mercy seat. And then our faith does not rest on our own character. It does not rest on our own performance. It does not rest on our own evaluation of ourselves at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Our faith rests completely on the character and the nature of the God that we serve. Our faith rests on His mercy and not upon our own goodness, our own nature. Our faith rests in His nature instead of ours. That's the only way I can think that you can have strong faith. Otherwise, you can only have strong faith when you've had a good week. <laughs> you prayed right, you fasted right, you walked in all the fruit of the Spirit, you did all that stuff, so now you can have strong faith. But then last week you didn't do so well, and so now you're not so sure. Maybe God's kind of looking cross-eyed at you or something, or kind of giving you the evil eye or the bony finger up there or something. And so, and so your walk with God is really erratic, and it's hard for it's hard for any kind of faith to grow in that environment. Am I right? Anybody tried and, and been frustrated? <laughs> and so, what we need to understand, what I want you to hear this morning, is is that God does not meet us at the judgment seat. God rather meets us at the mercy seat. It's from that place that He speaks to us. Right? Now, what's interesting is that the high priest was the one... God would speak to the entire nation, but He'd do it through the high priest. God wanted to make, even in the Old Covenant, God wanted to make all of Israel priests, but they said, we don't want to hear God. We don't want to see God. Let there be some kind of a mediation. So the priesthood was set in place to mediate between God and Israel. So when God's speaking to the high priest... He's speaking to all of Israel. But the priesthood was mediated at the place of mercy, not at the place of judgment. It wasn't mediated from the testimony that was in the ark. It was mediated from the voice of God speaking over the mercy, over the blood-covered mercy seat. Right? Now, in the new covenant, we have all become priests unto God. So how much more in the New Covenant does our mediation need to be from the mercy seat? See, the reality is is that we are a priesthood. A priesthood serves as a mediating factor between God and humanity. And so as Christians, we then become part of the priesthood that God has to mediate the New Covenant to humanity, to mediate the New Covenant to creation. So then the question becomes, what kind of a priesthood are we operating in? What kind of a prophetic voice do we have? Do we have a priesthood that mediates out of the judgment seat? Or do we have a priesthood that mediates from the mercy seat? Do we have a priesthood that is in the Holy of Holies? Because if you're in the Holy of Holies, then you're at the place of mercy. If you're in the Holy of Holies, you're at the place of the tangible manifest presence of God. If you're in the Holy of Holies, you're not just mediating out of Scripture. You're mediating out of the living voice of God who is speaking today just as much as He's ever spoken and who is guiding and leading us as His priesthood to be the mediation between God and all of humanity and to be the mediators between God and all of creation. Does that make sense? So we have to ask ourselves, which seat are we sitting on? 
Now, in the Gospel of John, Pilate is the one who's sitting at the judgment seat. We just read it. Pilate sits down at the judgment seat, and at the judgment seat, he condemns Christ. Because he heard... Now watch this, it's so powerful. Now, before I get into this stuff in John, because this, this is where you might get messed up. Like, if you're an extreme literalist, God, I, I bless the literal interpretation, alright? I'm all for it. The miracles happen like they happen. The resurrection happened like it happened. Crucifixion happened. I mean, I believe in all that, right? I'm not trying to metaphorically do something with it so that I can, don't, don't have to have faith in the supernatural. I'm not doing that, which is what liberals do. But, but John, of all the writers of, of, in the Bible, really John, of all the Gospels for sure, John's is the most mystical, and mystics hide things in there for us. Alright? So we're going to pull out some of the stuff that's hidden in there. Alright? So, John makes a point of telling us that Pilate is sitting on the judgment seat, but he doesn't want to condemn Christ because when he sits on the judgment seat, watch this, when he sits on the judgment seat, he can find no wrong in the man. Which means that he did fully live a, a pure and holy, perfect life, right? So that even Pilate, when he's evaluating from the judgment seat, he can find no fault in the man. But he hears voices. It wasn't until he heard the voice coming out of the religious power structure of the day that was supposed to be representing who God was, but had forgotten who He was. So that you have a priesthood... Ah, yeah, yeah. You have a priesthood in Caiaphas that's sitting at the judgments. <laughs> Let me not sitting at the judgment, but speaking at the judgment seat, speaking to the world, speaking to the government, speaking to politics from the judgment seat. And when Pilate hears that voice even though he knows in his own heart Jesus has done no wrong, he says, take him away and crucify him. Right? So you have a priesthood speaking at the judgment seat. Right? Take him away, crucify him. Now, what's so interesting about John's Gospel, if you read the entire Gospel of John, it's, 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 it's so amazing. I mean, there's depths of stuff in there. But one of the things for sure that John is doing with Jesus in his Gospel is he is replacing the temple with Christ. It's one of the reasons that we know that John's Gospel was written after 70 A.D. Because the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed by the Roman army in 70 A.D. Right? So, Israel is without a worship system. They're without a temple. So, Jesus comes, what John is doing is he's presenting Jesus Christ as the replacement of the temple system. That's why in John chapter 2, real early, real early John, uh, not the apostle, um, the other one, uh, John the Baptist. John the Baptist, right away in the first chapter, says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's replacing the sacrificial system because they would kill a lamb every day. He's replacing the sacrificial system with Christ. 
Then in chapter 2, he goes in and cleanses the temple and says, destroy this temple and in three days it'll be reconstituted. So he's saying right there, Jesus very clearly, I've come to replace, that this system is a corrupt system, I've come to replace the temple. You see it? Now, the other thing is, is that John's gospel is called the come and see gospel. Because the disciples asked Jesus in John chapter 1, where do you dwell? Where do you abide? Where is your home? They're not asking about his address. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hidden thing. It's a spiritual thing that John is pointing to. And so Jesus says, come and see. Come and see where I dwell. So that by the time you get to John 14, 15, he starts talking about, in my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place, I will bring you that where I am, you may be also, right? So he's talking about abiding places, dwelling places, the home, right? Come and see. So by the time, man, it's brilliant. By the time you get to John 19, Pilate makes two statements. He says, behold the man, and then he says, behold the king. That's the judgment. But then Jesus, there's an interesting thing that we miss. And and these details are really important because it says that they cast off for Jesus' clothes, right? But he has a tunic that they didn't want to tear. Why did they not want to tear the tunic? Because it had no seam. The only garment mentioned in the Scriptures that was a seamless garment like that was the garment of the high priest. So what John is literally doing is he's showing you not only does Jesus replace the sacrifice, not only does Jesus replace uh, the, the covenant, not only does he replace the temple, but he is also replacing the high priest. That what he's about to do is a high priestly thing. Right? Now, in the Synoptic Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other three Gospels that we have, the the way they talk about Jesus' crucifixion is totally different than how John talks about it. Now, remember, John's Gospel is written later. And the people who gave you your Bible, the church fathers, said that the Synoptic Gospels were there, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were there to prepare you for what you would learn about Jesus in the Gospel of John. But to really find out who Christ was, you couldn't do it from the, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It was simply preparation for you to understand who Christ was in the Gospel of John. Now, there's some people that may not like that, but you need to take it up with the people who actually gave you Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because that's what they said. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke speak about Jesus' death as rejection, They speak about it as humiliation, and they speak about it as shame. Right? John never talks of it that way. John talks of it as his exaltation, repeatedly, when the Son of Man is lifted up. So what Matthew, Mark, and Luke see as shame and rejection, John sees as enthronement and exaltation. And glorification. Because when Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross, he says, now is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, the glorification is an important part because it ties back into the Shekinah. Got it? Okay. Because what's happening is, is what John's showing us is that Jesus is taking his place 
as God in the flesh on the mercy seat. But the mercy seat is no longer in a temple and it's no longer in an ark. The mercy seat is the cross. The cross is the throne on which he sits in order to rule the world. Now, this is so fascinating. Because there's, there's three Marys at the foot of the cross. Jesus sees his mother there. Everybody say his mother. And we know from the other Gospels her name's Mary, right? Then there's Mary Magdala, and then there's Mary, the wife of Cleopas. Right? There's lots of cool stuff you could do with the names there, but I'm going to leave it alone. Because it mentions that the mother of Jesus was at the foot of the cross, and then it says, when he saw his mother, <laughs> and of course John, John refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved, so he's at the foot of the cross as well. And it says, when Jesus saw his mother... He beheld his disciple. Now, here's the really fascinating thing about John. John refers to the two Marys, but he does not refer to Jesus' mother as Mary. He doesn't say, it actually doesn't say in the text. Now, bear with me, don't have a coronary on me, a religious heart attack. It doesn't say Jesus saw Mary. His mother. It just says he saw his mother. Now, Jesus had brothers. We know this from Acts and other writings and tradition. So it would be very out of sorts for him to give his mother, Mary, to John. Not saying he didn't. I'm just saying I think there's a mystery here. I think John is hiding something. All right. You ready to depart a little bit from the ordinary? All right. I want you to think in temple terms with me, all right? Temple terms. So in the temple, you had the outer court, you had the inner court, and then where the Ark of the Covenant was and the Shekinah was, was the Holy of Holies. Now, when, when they go into exile, the glory leaves. When they come back, they rebuild a temple, but you don't read anywhere where the glory returns. In fact, when Jesus dies, we're told that when He dies, the veil that separated the people from the Holy of Holies. See, nobody but the high priest could see what was in the Holy of Holies, ever. Nobody ever saw the Ark of the Covenant except the high priests, because they covered it with a sheet when they were transporting it through the wilderness. Right? So, this is what a sham... They were running in Second Temple Judaism. There was no ark, there was no testimony, and there was no glory. It was completely empty. So when Jesus dies and the veil is rent, it is a revelation of the vanity of the temple system that was ruling over the people. So the question becomes, 
When did the Shekinah return? Because John says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? And through Him all things were made, and without Him nothing was made that has been made, and in Him was life, and that life was the light of men, right? And the light shines in the darkness, you know the story, right? And then we get down to verse 14, and it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt, and the, and the Greek word there is, and tabernacled among us, and we beheld His glory. So when the Word became flesh, the tabernacle was restored to Israel. <laughs> okay, so come with me to Luke's account. Cause, all right, so who's the tabernacle? <laughs> come with me to Luke's account, all right? Luke's account. Angel, she hears a knock on the door. Angel comes in. You're going to give birth to a child, right? He's going to deliver. He's going to be the Savior. He's going to be the deliverer, all that stuff, right? And she says, how will this be seeing I do not know a man? And how does he answer? He says, Mary, he says some specific things. He said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Two things. Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The, the language there for overshadowing, it's Shekinah language. It's, it describes exactly what the Shekinah did in the tabernacle in the wilderness. And then he says, the child that will be born to you is holy. You weren't holy because you were a good person. Holiness did not have as much to do with character as it did location. That's why it's the holy of holies, the holy place, the holy temple, the holy land. So in other words... Mary becomes the tabernacle, her womb becomes the Holy of Holies, and Jesus becomes the Shekinah dwelling inside her. Now, you ready for this? This is where... Breathe deep. Shekinah, in Hebrew, is always feminine. It's never referred to glory. It's never in the masculine. In fact, when Ezekiel sees the glory in Ezekiel chapter 1, and he sees the man, the image of God sitting on the throne, the, the, the sitting and, the, and all that language for the glory and the cherubim, it's all in the feminine. And, okay, Holy Spirit or Spirit in Hebrew is always in the feminine tense. When they translated the Bible from Hebrew to Greek, and your New Testament is written in Greek, they did away with the feminine tense, but it's still there in the Hebrew. Now remember, we're not talking about like gender organs or anything, because like God is immaterial, right? I mean, right? So, I mean, the masculine and feminine are energetic principles inside the Godhead that are manifested in the image of God in the beginning, male and female in the garden. Go look at it. In the image of God, He made them. Male and female, He made them. So throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, there is a feminine principle of Shekinah and spirit, and there is a masculine principle of father and, and all that other stuff. Are you doing all right? So, actually... 
I don't want to get too graphic here. In order for Mary to conceive, it wasn't that she provided the feminine and God provided the masculine. Otherwise, we're into some stuff that we shouldn't be into. Are you tracking with me? That's why there's two principles. The Holy Spirit. Now remember, to a Hebrew, feminine, young girl in Palestine, when she hears Holy Spirit, she doesn't think he. She thinks she. So when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, there's the feminine principle of the Shekinah. And when the power of the highest shall overshadow you, there's the masculine principle of the power of the highest. And that which is born out of that union in your womb shall be holy. Now I promise you what I'm telling you so far is the truth, but now think with me. If that's true, if Mary hears feminine Holy Spirit, masculine power of the highest, then let me ask you this question. In reality, who's Jesus' mother? Go back and read Galatians 4. If you're born of the law, your mother is Hagar. Your mother is the Jerusalem that now exists. But if you're born from above, who's your mama? <laughs> the Jerusalem which is above. And then he says, if that which is born according to the flesh persecutes that which is born according to the Spirit, so who's your mama? <laughs> so when Jesus is on the cross and He looks down and He sees His mother... <laughs> <laughs> is he talking about Mary? Or is, or could she have been there? Was she there? Or was he, I mean, she very well could have been, but when it didn't say he saw Mary, his mother, it said he's, when he saw his mother, when he saw his mother, he said, he looked at the disciple that he loved, and he said, Son, behold your mother, mother, behold your son. I. It's the same guy that said, you got to be born of the flesh and born of the Spirit if you want to inherit life in John chapter 3. Same guy who said, I'm going away, but when I go away, I will send the Holy Spirit. Same, same, same place where it says in John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39, that, that if you, if you're thirsty, come unto me and drink. And if you come unto me and drink and you believe in me, out of your innermost being, there's gonna flow rivers of living water, right? 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 And then he said, this he spoke of the Spirit, which they would afterward receive, because Jesus, watch this, Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now, let me ask you a question. For John, when is Jesus glorified? At the crucifixion. So in John's account, when does Jesus send the Spirit? When does he send the Shekinah? Because I didn't read far enough in the text. If you keep reading in John chapter 19, Jesus is not speaking to his Father. 
He's speaking to the disciple whom Jesus loved at the foot of the cross. Why? Because John as a disciple is a representative of the new priesthood. And God said in the old covenant, I will come and speak to you where the blood is being shed over the mercy seat. That's where I'll meet with you. And that's where I'll speak with you. And so Jesus, the Word made flesh, is speaking to the new priesthood from the cross. This is important. He's talking to them, and then he says, I thirst. Who's he talking to? He's not throwing his head up and saying, Father, I thirst. He's not talking to the Father. He's talking to the people at the foot of the cross. And the soldiers there go and get him vinegar... John is brilliant. The man is brilliant. Because he just talked in John 15 about being the true vine that brings forth the new wine. And so he's thirsting. He's looking for a company of people that are going to manifest that fruit. But instead of giving him that fruit, what they offer him is sour grapes. Because that's because that's really all a priesthood that sits at the judgment seat has to offer is sour grapes. And then we get mad because people don't like our flavor. <laughs> and when Jesus tastes that, he says, "It is finished and then it says and then it says he gave up his spirit that's how it reads in our bible he gave up his spirit and your mind immediately goes back to the synoptics but you're not dealing with the synoptic gospel you have to do bible exegesis right which means you have to let each author tell the story in their way without interference from the others because in the synoptic gospels Jesus is talking to his father. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's not in John. He's talking to the father when he says, Father, into my, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And he gave up the ghost. But in John, he's not talking to his father. In John, he's talking to the disciple that he loves. He's talking to the priesthood at the foot of the cross that is willing to meet him and hear him speak from the mercy seat. And it does not say he gave up his, his spirit in the original language. It does not. It says he handed over the spirit. Watch. If I'm right, Jesus sees his mother at the foot of the cross and he says, Mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. And the disciple opens his heart and he takes her as his own from that day forward. And then Jesus says, I thirst. And he gets a taste of the false religious system that had crucified him. He gets his final sip of the sour wine of the cup that his father asked him to drink. And then he hands over his spirit, not to his father, but to the church. To the priesthood that is willing to come to the mercy seat to both hear and minister and speak.
Woo! Come on, give him a hand. So the question becomes for us then, what seat are we at? What seat are we meeting him at? First of all, are we meeting him at the judgment seat or are we meeting him at the foot of the cross at the mercy seat? See, the most dangerous church on the planet is not the church that does not know the power of God. The most dangerous church on the planet is the church that receives the infilling and empowering of the Holy Spirit, but they think of power in terms of the imperial power and might like Rome had, rather than the power of the self-sacrificial kenosis, self-pouring out of the Lamb of God. Because one will use the power to control and to dominate and to harm and to show you up. The other will use the power to serve and to minister to the world from the place of mercy and grace and not from the place of judgment. The most dangerous church in the world is the church that has taken Jesus permanently off the cross. Not saying that he's still dead. I'm saying that God is most fully revealed in the person of Christ giving His life for the world. And He is most clearly revealed at the mercy seat and not the judgment seat. So that when you and I present ourselves to God, we're told in the book of Romans chapter 12, by the mercies of God, where's the mercy? Present yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. You never present yourself to God on the basis of the law. You never present yourself to God on the basis of your performance. You never present yourself to God on the basis of your flesh. And, and if you're hearing the voice of condemnation, you're hearing it out of an atmosphere from a priesthood that is ministering at the judgment seat and not at the mercy seat. Because our brethren, many of them, have taken Pilate's seat and they're speaking with the voice of judgment and they're charging the atmosphere as ambassadors for Christ. They are charging the atmosphere with condemnation and guilt. So that when you try to come into the atmosphere of the glory of God, it's not the voice of the Savior over the cross that you're hearing. It's the voice of a priesthood that has chosen to serve at the judgment seat rather than at the mercy seat. And if you're not careful, you'll mistake it for the voice of your father and you'll think he's putting you into condemnation and bondage. But that is a Jerusalem that is from below, that is an earthly system that has forgotten that God is most powerfully and most clearly and most dynamically revealed, not in His exaltation, but in His humiliation. So that there has to come a priesthood that ministers out of the Holy of Holies. There has to come a priesthood that ministers the life from the mercy seat. There has to come a priesthood that can tune out all the voices of the false pharisaical system that is running throughout the land and can tune into the voice of the Master coming from the cross that can become the recipients of the presence and recipients of the glory and recipients of the Shekinah and recipients of the power and can realize they don't just have a Father in Heaven, but they've been born of a city that is from above. And their homeland is not the Jerusalem that's down here. Their homeland is the Jerusalem that's up there. So they never let themselves become more Republican than Christian or more Democrat than Christian or more conservative than believers. 
They're not dividing with one another and dividing people. But unifying at the place of the mercy seat and then willing to administer mercy. So you've messed up, so what do we minister? We minister mercy. So you've fallen, what do we minister? We minister mercy. So you're stuck, your life's in all kinds of wreck and mess. What, do we sit back and judge you from the judgment seat like Pilate and the religious system? Or do we come as a priesthood that's speaking with the blood, that speaks better things than the blood of Abel, that is speaking for mercy and redemption? Are we speaking with a prophetic voice of harm and judgment? Or are we speaking with a prophetic voice of mercy and grace? Because I'm telling you right now that God is moving throughout the earth to raise up a priesthood that is hearing the voice of mercy and hearing the voice of affirmation. And God is moving throughout the earth to raise up a prophetic voice that does not stand at the bema seat with Pilate, but stands at the mercy seat of the cross with Jesus Christ, ministering a word of life and a word of redemption and a word of reconciliation Reconciliation. What bondage do you need broken from your life? There's power in the blood of Jesus. What what situation do you need to shift and turn around for you? If you're trying to perform for God, to get God to do it, it ain't ever going to happen. But if you throw yourself at the foot of the cross and the mercy of the Savior... Because what you'll discover is the next thing John sees is the Romans come and puncture the side of Jesus. And out of His side there's blood and there's water that begins to flow. The two elements of life. Blood and water. The two elements of the womb. Blood and water. Zechariah saw it. He said in his book, he said, in the last days, God will open a fountain of cleansing and mercy for the iniquities of His people. What voice have you been hearing? What voice have you been speaking? What throne have you been speaking from? What kind of church, what kind of people do we want to be? Because I believe with all my heart, if ever there was a time for a powerful clarion call to come from a people, it needs to come in our day from a people who have been reconciled at the mercy seat and the throne of the cross and have been committed and handed over the Spirit. And how do you know you have the Spirit? Because if it flows from the wounded Lamb, if you really are moved by the Holy Spirit, it will be impossible for you and me to reflect anything other than the reality of that wounded lamb. And when we come to minister, you know what else is really cool? Okay, last thing. You know what else is cool about this? In some sense, it does say he gave, he handed over the Spirit, but in another sense, it does say he gave up the Spirit. 
Now, he's higher. This is where we get messed up because we look at it with natural eyes. In the natural, he's higher on the cross than the people at the foot of the cross. Right? So you would think he'd have to hand it down. So if he's handing the spirit up, it's got to be going to heaven. But what we don't realize was that the power of the cross is that Jesus descended farther than you and I could ever possibly think about falling. See, if Jesus was recovering humanity in their fall, he had to go deeper than the fall. He didn't grab him a hand and pull him up. He went deeper and further than they went. So that while physically it's this way, spiritually it's this way. So when he offers up the Spirit, guess who catches it before it can get to heaven? So no matter how far you think you've fallen, he's fallen further still. No matter how deep you think your pain or your darkness has descended or caused you to descend, he has descended further still. No matter how messed up, no matter how broken or fallen or messed up you think someone in your life is, Jesus has fallen and been broken and descended further than they could possibly have been broken or descended. And from that place of dissension, He offers up His Spirit so that we can ride out of the pit and into the heavens on the wings of the wind. Let's bow our heads. There needs to be ministry time today. I just feel it. Some of you need to you need a fresh release and dose of the mercy of God in your life. No matter what you've done, there's mercy for you. No matter what you've done, where you've been, there's cleansing, there's healing, there's hope. No matter how messed up you think your life is, there's hope. So let's just let's just wait on him for a minute. Holy Spirit, I, I've done my absolute best to deliver this this morning. Father, I thank you for the way you're moving right now. Thank you for the way you're healing. Thank you for the way you're revealing yourself. Lord, I pray for every person that's brokenhearted, every person that's lost hope, every person that's frustrated, every person that their soul has been wounded by their own self-judgments or the judgments of others. Father, I pray you would blow a wind of refreshing and renewal and revival into those people today. In Jesus' name, let's stand up. I'm just curious, just take a a soft survey this morning. How many of you would say, "I, I need a fresh dose? Just lift your hand if you just say, I need a fresh dose of His mercy today. How could we get just the 
I don't know, worship team. I don't know if everybody's still here or not. But let me see your hand again. Let me see your hand. Thank you, Lord. It's just to open up, just right where you're at. We won't, I mean, we'll open up the altars. We'll have our ministry teams like we usually do. But why don't you just, just open yourself up. Sometimes it helps. You do whatever you want to do. But sometimes it helps to just posture yourself in that way where you're just, you're just open and you're just ready to receive whatever it is that the Lord has for you. Some of you, you feel like you have not been able to hear the voice of God. It's because you've been trying to hear Him from the judgment seat, not the mercy seat. He's saying something totally other than what you think He's saying. And that's why you can't hear. <laughs> Some of you, there's such a cloud of condemnation over you. You need to tune that stuff out. Come to the mercy seat. Let's just, I don't know how to do this, but <laughs> let's, just, let's just worship him for a moment, all right? Let's just worship him. Holy Spirit, we thank you for moving. Thank you for your wonderful presence. Thank you for your wonderful people. And just let that anointing begin to wash over your life, begin to break over your life. Some of you, you're kind of a stranger to the presence of God. Because you've got to come in where there's mercy. <laughs> means you have to quit judging people, too. <laughs> you're hard on yourself, but you're equally as hard on other people. You've got to stop that. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, right? We're just going to close out with a worship song.